This podcast is part of the Garnet Media Group Podcast Network. Garnet Media Group is a partnership between the student-run media outlets at the University of South Carolina. For more information and to see more student work, visit garnetmedia.org. Hey guys, welcome to Adventures Beyond the Coop, the podcast where we hear from former and current Gamecocks who've done something a little wild. I'm your host, Chloe Barlow. If you like going on adventures, getting outside, or just want to hear a good story, you're in luck. This is the podcast where we know sometimes you have to get lost to find yourself. Guys, we are officially on episode three, and I am super stoked for this one. This week, I got the chance to talk to Troy Brodzinski. Troy was such an amazing guest. I appreciate how humble and honest he was about his path and how terrifying it is to look at that traditional post-grad stable career life or condition to want and turn away from it because your heart's pulling you somewhere else. I think that feeling is something a lot of us can relate to. I know I certainly can. Troy's graduated now, and he's followed his own heart to some incredible places. I mean, everything from brutal manual labor building sections of the Continental Divide Trail 15 miles into the backcountry, to the sweet serenity of a hike to eat lunch at this pristine alpine lake. He's lived in his car in the desert heat, he's lived in hammocks with nothing but a tarp during monsoon season, and now he lives in a wildlife preserve, a haven for migratory birds with sweeping views of the San Luis Valley. And maybe that's fitting. Gamecocks aren't a migratory bird, but Troy seems to constantly be in motion. So if you've related to anything I've said so far, I'm hoping you can find some inspiration and maybe even some peace listening to this episode. First of all, Troy, thank you for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I want to start with your time at Carolina. You graduated in December 2020, correct? Correct. Okay. And what did you graduate with a degree in? I graduated with a degree in environmental science. Okay. So tell me about how you like first got into the outdoors. Um, For sure. I started with Boy Scouts when I was, I don't know, 10 or something like that years old. Uh, and just got into hiking and trails and climbing and canoeing and all things outdoors uh, and haven't really stopped since then. So Boy Scouts first and then when you got to college how did that kind of morph? Yeah uh, so I actually started uh, with a major in mechanical engineering not environmental science uh, and then found out that i didn't really enjoy that as much as I thought I did. So I decided to switch to something I was more passionate about, which, uh, like we said, is the outdoors. So uh, I found a club also at the organization fair, the Mountaineering Whitewater Rafting Club, which along with the major change kind of gave me a lot, excuse me, uh, a lot more passion for the outdoors. I found in uh, meeting people outdoors and doing all sorts of different things, climbing and hiking and backpacking and Uh, All of that with new friends was just something that I fell in love with uh, and eventually became an officer in the club and continued doing that until I graduated. Uh, Unfortunately, we were cut short by the pandemic, but before then we got outdoors every weekend and camped and hiked and uh, yeah. Was your thought that you were going to be doing what you're doing now? Uh, No, not at all. I, at the time, had no idea what I wanted to do after college and still kind of don't, Um, but I knew I just wanted to work outside. I couldn't see myself working in an office or uh, in a building at all. 
So uh, I kind of just set my sights on any sort of job that would let me work outdoors. And uh, it's, it's worked out so far. Did that ever scare you, like the prospect of not doing or following like the traditional path? Uh, yeah, it was terrifying for most of the experience and still a little bit now. Um, I saw my friends graduate and land jobs right away and start working 40 hour work weeks. And uh, some of them enjoyed it, some of them didn't, but they all kind of had a path and knew where they were going and I did not. So it was, it was definitely scary, um, but it's, you know, just having faith that things will work out and try and uh, put in some effort into finding something cool and exciting. And so far I've been doing seasonal gigs so that way I don't have to actually think about the rest of that path and just have to think six months ahead. And that's worked out so far, but uh, we'll see how that changes as I transition to more career-based jobs. How did you find your first seasonal gig? Yeah, uh, I started looking at the Texas AMU job board. I think it's TAMU.org or something. I'm sure you could Google it, uh, the Texas AMU Environmental Job Board. They have environmental postings from around the country and sometimes international uh, of all sorts of things from you know biological surveys to doing GIS work. Just everything environmental is there. And uh, I basically just searched Colorado, Alaska, and Oregon because for whatever reason, I uh, wanted to work in those places. I went on a couple road trips right after I graduated to Colorado for the first time beginning of last year and fell in love with it. So I just searched Colorado and the first thing that came up was uh, trail work with the Conservation Corps, the Southwest Conservation Corps based out of Durango. So I applied there and got an interview and spent six months doing that last year and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. What was the interview like? Like, I'm sure it's not like a typical job interview. Yeah, not at all. Uh, I think when my boss first called me, he said uh, he had just put a 17 foot canoe off his shoulders. So he was finally free to speak. Uh, and we talked for 30 minutes just about uh, outdoor experience and kind of what uh, level of backpacking and camping and stuff like that I had done. Um, and it was, it was pretty short, really. He just wanted to make sure that I was, you know, physically fit and competent in the outdoors and able to sleep in a tent. Uh, and that was really all. So they, uh, it was a pretty short interview process. And then I was hired in, uh, let's see, late March and I was out there by May. So really not a bad process at all. So tell me about like what you were feeling before that first job. Like, were you nervous? Were you prepared? Were you excited? And like, what was that like? Yeah. Um, one thing I should mention is that the job, there's no housing for it and housing in the area is expensive and it's AmeriCorps. So you get a living stipend instead of a salary. Um, and that is often not enough of a stipend to live in a house. So I decided to live in uh, my Honda Pilot. I fold the back seats down, put everything I owned in it and a couple sleeping pads and a sleeping bag and uh, just sort of sent it out there. So yeah, I was feeling nervous, never having lived in my car before. Uh, not sure how viable that even was in the area. I looked up some free campsites on online before I got there uh, and saw that there was at least one or two places that I could sleep in a car for free. So I knew something would work out uh, and I was excited because I was 
going to work outside in Colorado. And uh, like we said before, yeah, I was a little terrified still of not having a traditional job path ahead of me and not knowing exactly what the job entailed. But uh, I got there and had a lot of fun and it all worked out. That's amazing. Sleeping in your car, <laughs> was that as glamorous as the internet makes it seem? Uh, honestly, yeah, it was a way better experience than I expected. Um, I think it helped that nine out of 10 people working in trail work at the Southwest Conservation Corps lived out of their cars. So it wasn't just me. Uh, I was often camping with friends or making new friends at large campsites or, uh, you know, I never felt scared that I'd have to sleep on the side of the road somewhere or there's always Walmart parking lots. Uh, but it was not that bad once you figured out the basics of, you know, where to get water and food and uh, kind of how to set up the inside of a Honda Pilot to be lived in. Um, but after a little bit of trial and error, I'd say by the first, you know, week or two, I was happy with the car and the setup and uh, didn't really have any issues. That sounds like magical just to like live in Colorado working on trails all day with your buddies. That's like amazing. <laughs> it kind of was. Yeah, we were working in, in the four corner states. So I was bouncing around Utah, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, just camping in the middle of the desert one day and on a mountaintop the next. And uh, yeah, meeting friends the whole time. It was it was pretty magical. Was there any like point where you had like a reality check where you're like, oh, my God, this isn't what I expected? Um, we did spend a month living in the Wemenooch Wilderness in Colorado. We spent two separate 15 day uh, hitches, we called them. Uh, so 15 days, 17 miles into the backcountry with no reception and no amenities. Um, and the middle of monsoon season with a base camp at 10,500 feet. So getting thunderstorms literally every day, uh, stopping work by like 12 or one usually when they would roll in. Uh, and, you know, sitting, I lived in a hammock for the whole month. So sitting in a hammock with a tarp, uh, that's just being drenched by a monsoon thunderstorm in the middle of a valley surrounded by, you know, 13, 14,000 foot tall mountains, uh, was yeah, a bit of a reality check, but not in a bad way. Uh, it was pretty refreshing. And by the end of the month, I, I think I had a different outlook on, on reality. That sounds like really peaceful, like rain noises just on a tarp over your head. Yeah, it was uh, mostly peaceful. Occasionally, you know, a lightning strike a quarter mile away was not so peaceful. Um, but, you know, watching moose graze on the river below you while like a thunderstorm rolled through the valley was, yeah, pretty, pretty peaceful. I'd recommend it. So tell me like a little bit about what your day to day looked like. Like we've kind of brushed on it, but really, what did you do? Sure. So we worked uh, eight days on, six days off usually. So we would all get there on the first of eight days. We get to a um, basically a farm where the organization worked out of and we all park our cars. We would get all the tools and gear we needed. Um, we would pack food. We would pack, you know, stoves and tents and all that and get our bags ready, throw that in the trailer and all hop in a 11 person uh Chevy cargo van. There was eight people per crew, but uh, we had an 11 person van. So we threw all our stuff in there and then drove to a location uh, somewhere, usually in the middle of a national forest. And the next day we would usually start work in the morning. You're up at 6 a.m., 6.30, uh, 
everyone once a day or sorry one person per day uh has the chore of setting out breakfast if you're in the front country that is i'll explain that later but uh when you have the van you can bring a cooler full of food you can bring a little pantry full of food so everyone sets up breakfast then 7 30 or 7 o'clock to 7 30 uh you all sit around and stretch and talk about safety and some things to get prepared for the day what hazards to watch out for wildlife that kind of stuff and then for the next eight hours you go and build a trail or cut down trees or do whatever the uh, project partner he's usually forest service national park service someone from one of those organizations who meets you out there and tells you what they need you to do uh, you basically just do whatever they need for the next seven days and hopefully accomplish the objective we did all sorts of things from building new trail to fixing old trails to uh, cutting down trees in wilderness areas where you can't use chainsaws. So we have to use the, you know, giant two-person cross-cut saws they were using 100 years ago uh, because you can't use anything mechanized in wilderness areas. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, and then end of the day, you go back to your hammock or your tent, whatever it is, and uh, everyone has dinner and gathers around a stove because we can't have campfires in wildfire season. Uh, and then rinse and repeat, do the same thing the next day, and eventually drive back to Durango and six days later do it all over again. That sounds really exhausting, but like super fulfilling. Yeah, exhausting and fulfilling are the top two words I would use to describe it. So what exactly does building a new trail look like? Like I know what a trail looks like, but I don't really know what the process of that looks like. Yeah, uh, so we mostly worked on the CDT, the Continental Divide Trail, which goes from Canada to Mexico and uh, crosses through uh, Colorado and New Mexico. So in the sections of New Mexico where we built new trail, it was because the CDT is not a complete trail. There's some sections that follow uh, roads. So now this trail is, uh, I'm not actually sure how old, but at, you know, a century or two maybe, uh, built on a network of previous trails. So we're going back and sort of linking the trails. Uh, so it's eventually going to be a complete trail from start to finish instead of just walking along some sort of four by four road in the middle of the desert or something. So you kind of just go out there with shovels and hoes and picks and uh, you dig a few inches down to the mineral soil. You get rid of all the organic soil on top and you shape the trail so that it's a sustainable trail so that water and drainage is accounted for and erosion doesn't just destroy the trail in a few years or decades. Uh, we have a, a hundred year standard, we like to say. So the trail that you build should be still there in a hundred years, recognizable and usable. Uh, and you account for how people will walk if there's horses or mountain bikes allowed in the area. So our crew leaders are trained on specific trail sustainability standards. Uh, and we kind of look to them for guidance and they teach uh, that to the crew and you sort of just dig in the dirt until you have what looks like a sustainable trail. And then each person does like a 10 or eight foot section and then you kind of caterpillar along until eventually you've got a few miles of brand new trail. I'm curious, did your degree help you at all with like thinking about how to like build a trail? Uh, that's a great question. I think it did, but not in actually any of the or many of the specifics we use. I took a national parks class with the geography department uh, that kind of mentioned some of that trail sustainability stuff. And I think the the way that the degree that the degree was most helpful uh, was kind of just in gaining like basic environmental knowledge and the environmental mindset surrounding sustainability 
and how to meet the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future. Um, and just kind of general environmental knowledge about the places we were working in and how uh, the ecology was affected by the trail and how all of those different pieces fit into the uh, kind of grander ecosystem that surrounded us. Do you have any like fun stories from the trail or like scary stories or? Um, yeah, we saw a mountain lion in uh, northern New Mexico right before we all went to bed, uh, you know, sleeping in hammocks, basically a mountain lion burrito swinging from two trees. Uh, and there haven't really been any attacks in the area recently. So that was cool. But um, it's also really rare to see a mountain lion. Like, uh, I know someone who's worked in the Forest Service for 40 or 50 years and has never once seen one. So to have that experience was both terrifying and incredibly fortunate. Uh, I've also walked uh, within, you know, 15 feet of a moose without realizing it. And I'm honestly more afraid of moose than I am of mountain lions. So I was hiding behind a tree for most of that encounter. Let's see. Yeah, that's moose and mountain lions. Oh, marmots. Marmots you have to watch out for because they will eat uh, all of your clothing and your tents. So they, while they look cute, they can be a little scary when you think about how many of them are back at camp eating your belongings. What's a marmot? Great question. Uh, they're a little, like, like if you inflated a guinea pig five times its size and then put it at elevations of like 8,000 feet and above and made it really, really like salt. And <laughs> that's a marmot. Sounds like something like eight-year-old me would dream up in a nightmare. Oh, absolutely. They are little alien creatures and they make a sound like your watch battery is dying. Oh my God. Yeah, they chirp. It's, it's, a, it's a little scary the first time you see it. It's like a squirrel on steroids, kind of. Yeah, a lot like that. <laughs> okay, wait, this doesn't have to be on the pod, but I'm curious because like <laughs> sometimes I come across these like conspiracy accounts and there's so there's a lot about national parks oh yeah and there's you don't have to answer like whatever but have you seen the one about the staircases uh i have not but i've heard a little bit about you know staircases in the woods um before and i never found any staircases personally uh i didn't think there were that many creepy encounters i heard some from other other crew members um but no staircases in my my encounters wait will you tell me the creepy stuff i won't put it in if you don't want me to yeah uh sure so one of my crew leaders was working on a saw crew so like going out and using chainsaws to destroy invasive species like trees and stuff uh and right when i got out they got dropped in the middle of the arizona desert and their project partner said hey like just so you guys know uh, we did find a couple like severed goat heads and some blood pentagrams uh, and like a few other kind of wacky things out in the desert. Uh, just so you know, so, you know, good thing you guys have those chainsaws, right? All right, peace. And then left them in the desert. So uh, I wasn't on that crew, but I imagine they probably had an interesting uh, sleep for the next couple of days. Yeah. Uh, and then another one was in the California Conservation, California Conservation Corps. Uh, they have a much different setup than us. We use bear bags when we're out in country, bear country, and we hang all of our food from uh, a rope, like 10 feet from any tree, 10 feet from the side, 10 feet from the ground, so bears can't reach it. Uh, their strategy in the CCC is to post one person's tent in the middle of the kitchen every night. 
And if they hear a bear, they're supposed to yell for everybody else to come and scare the bear away. Uh, but one time, obviously, uh, a bear saw a tent in the middle of a kitchen and just started clawing at it and getting its uh, paws in this tent. And so somebody started screaming, obviously, and uh, their crew eventually rushed over and, and scared the bear away. But uh, I personally wouldn't want to be the one set on bear snack duty. Yeah, no, I can't imagine anybody that would want that. <laughs> That's terrifying. Yeah. Scary, scary stuff, but cool stuff. But <laughs> you never think about how like big the woods are. And then when you actually think about it, you're like, oh my God, like the cave stuff. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, they're pretty vast. It, it can be, uh, you can feel pretty small when you're in the middle of a 500,000 square mile wilderness. Yeah, for sure. What did you take away from that job? Like, what'd you learn? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. I learned a fair bit about myself. I think I learned uh, to the extent that I can just survive in the woods. Like, if you have food and water and it's not too cold at night, you can kind of live... Uh, you know, forever in the woods, and especially if you've got good company around. Um, I learned, you know, my physical capacity working at 12,000 feet, swinging a sledgehammer for eight hours a day uh, can be a little bit of a mind game sometimes, but it's, it's definitely a learning experience. Um, I learned about the values that I have in uh, working with a crew. We were actually the only long-term crew to have no members quit during the season uh, and I think we owed that to our like our crew culture and just the way we uh, respect each other each other's opinions and everyone's space and uh, I learned what I look for in crews in the future and I think that was a really cool experience um, and I learned a lot about nature obviously just living in nature and experiencing it firsthand and uh, especially nature in the southwest which is something I had never experienced before what is it that you are looking for in a crew? Good question. I think, like I said, respect is a huge one. Everyone respecting everyone's opinions and their you know, need for personal time and space was a huge thing in our crew. Anytime somebody didn't want to be involved in whatever was going on, they knew they had the right to just get up and walk away and do their own thing and, and not have to worry about the crew. Competence in what you're doing is also a huge thing. Everyone in the crew you know, worked hard to learn what they had to do and uh, they put their skills to use. And when they were something that they weren't sure they could do, they, you know, raised their hand and learned from people around them and, and asked everyone else's opinion. Uh, and we got all of our projects done. And that was a big thing. Um, and just, you know, having a, a kind and fun atmosphere, humor is a huge part of that. We were always laughing, you know, even in the middle of the 15th thunderstorm of the hitch we were all making jokes and uh keeping keeping everyone's spirits up and just having a good time so not taking things too seriously is uh is a huge part of that i feel like being out in the literally the wilderness for however many days would definitely like help me probably not take things so seriously probably take it a little bit slower be a little bit more relaxed yeah absolutely and when you, you know the only people you're going to see for the next eight days are the seven people surrounding you. you, you tend to treat them a little kinder and to be a little more understanding. And you know that everyone's just as tired as you are. And you take that into account when you're all interacting around the campfire, or whatever it is. And uh, it's, yeah, that crew culture. Yeah, yeah. 
I guess this is like along the same vein, but what kind of person do you think is suited for this work? Because I'm willing to bet not everybody is suited <laughs> to go work building trails, but what, what do you think like some key traits you need to have to be able to do this or you need to develop before you do this? Yeah, I think you're right. Not everyone, it's not for everyone, but I also think that more people can do it than most people would expect. We had a super diverse crew, people from all sorts of backgrounds and different studies in college or non-college or whatever their life paths were. Um, I think just recognizing the things I talked about in your crew and just being uh, excited to learn and, and wanting to learn and wanting to live outside and to kind of, you know, give back to the trails that you've been walking on your whole life and um, yeah, I think honestly, anyone can do it if you're physically fit enough and you're mentally fit enough to live in the woods with seven other people who are just as crazy as you are. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's really not as uh, exclusive as I think some people think it is. Tell me a little bit about that mental fitness, because you talked a little bit about it being like a mind game. So like, how does your mental like kind of play into this? Yeah, um, that's definitely something that you kind of have to keep in mind, uh, taking that, that space when you need it. And, uh, you know, if, if you're not feeling mentally fit, then talk to your crew and the people around you and uh, try to see what's going on. And, you know, nobody wants to be sad working on a trail. So if you're not in the right headspace, just making sure that your, your crew is there for you. And um, so it's, it, it can be a mind game sometimes when you're, you know, you don't have any contact with your friends and family outside of your crew uh, and you're living in nature with everything it has to offer, you know, bugs and injuries and it, not the greatest weather all the time and all of that. So just um, being aware of that and knowing that, you know, everything will eventually pass and you have that crew around you and uh just i don't know that's a, that's a tough question to answer <laughs> yeah yeah i got you so what is your favorite memory from that trail like that job experience like what was your favorite section of the trail your favorite state hmm um another good question i would say either the carson national forest where we worked on the cdt uh we did a number of different things there we built two new miles of the CDT. We cut through 35 miles of uh, downed trees. We just spent a lot of time in what is some of the most diverse and incredible like topography I've ever seen. We would go from 4,000 foot high alpine desert one day to 12,000 feet rolling grassy peaks and little, you know, aspen groves and elk running around and antelopes and foxes and moose and, and mountain lions and the whole nine yards and um, that. And then the Wemenuch wilderness that I mentioned, just spending a full month, like really getting to know one little piece of wilderness. And we were just, we were 17 miles back. So far enough that most day hikers weren't getting close to us. So we only really saw people who were doing CDT through hikes who were, you know, three months in on their five month journey uh, and just, super interesting people from all around the globe who had come to do this incredible journey and uh, meeting those people and then 
seeing again the thunderstorms rolling every night and getting in tune with the nature around you and seeing the moose eating by the riverbed every night while you're brushing your teeth and uh, just little things like that that you kind of eventually feel like home living in a hammock on a cliffside in the middle of nowhere um, and that was that was super cool yeah yeah that sounds very idyllic yeah a little bit yeah um curious clarifying question how long does it take like to conceptualize it how long does it take to build two miles of trail yeah that is a great question and it's entirely dependent on the weather and the specific crew uh those were our first two hitches so our first two eight day eight days of work um and it took us collectively of those 16 days probably 12 days with eight people working we did have some hiccups here and there we had to uh, medevac one member at one point we had to stop a few times for hail and thunderstorms uh and the weather went from you know one morning it would snow for three hours then it would be 60 degrees that afternoon then a lightning storm would come in that night and it would be 20 degrees again uh so stuff like that impacts how fast you can build a trail and what kind of crew you're working with it was our first time doing it so we probably could be a little faster if we went back and did it now but uh generally you're moving you know a tenth of a mile or two each day which doesn't sound like a lot but when you're digging for all eight to ten hours of those days uh it's it is a lot but the cool thing is you work from your camp usually. So every day your walk back to camp is a little bit further, but you're walking along the trail that you just built by hand the days before. So it's super fulfilling and rewarding. Uh, and it, it makes building each quarter mile of that trail worth it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like enjoying the fruits of your labor, literally. Definitely. So did you ever get downtime? And like, if you did, what did you do? Did you go out hiking or how do you spend your downtime when you spend all of your time out? <laughs> On the eight day hitches, we did not have days off uh, because we had those six days off immediately following. But on the 15 day hitches, we had three days off distributed as we, we could choose as a crew through those 15 days. So we uh, were usually pretty tired those days. Uh, so I'd say 50-50, some people would go hike and some people would just read and sleep in their tent and enjoy the sun uh, and just kind of hang out. So one of those three days i went and hiked a 14 mile loop up to an alpine lake and ate lunch watching this you know group of elk graze around this uh 12,000 foot lake and then the next day of those three days i think i just ate m&ms in a hammock and watched the clouds roll by for the whole day uh so it really just depends on what kind of work you've been doing before and what kind of work you're going to do the next days and if you feel like exploring or not or just kind of living in the woods there you go <laughs> let's shift and that job eventually came to an end and now you've taken a new job so tell me a little bit about your new job yeah so uh this is actually this today was my third day of my new job working as a wildland firefighter for the u.s fish and wildlife service based in alamosa colorado so about two and a half hours west of durango where i was working last season uh, it's another six-month seasonal position, so February to August. And for the next couple weeks, I'll basically just be doing trainings and helping around uh, at the wildlife refuges in the area because the Fish and Wildlife Service operates out of 
national wildlife refuges largely where the park service works out of parks and forest service out of forests so they are little areas not little uh they're areas that are protected for wildlife uh specifically in alamosa and the san luis valley it's a migratory bird haven so we get birds that are flying from alaska or south america or all over the country it's also elk and porcupines and all sorts of other little critters all around uh so we live and work on these refuges and we'll be training for the next couple of weeks and then in march the prescribed burning season starts so for the next three months uh, from march to june we will be doing controlled burns throughout the mid plains region which is uh from colorado to nebraska and kansas so we'll be going out and according to you know specific plans that are created by uh, professional fire managers and ecologists and biologists we will go to areas and do controlled burns so we'll set forest fires basically uh, i guess i should explain that forest fires are actually uh, healthy for the ecosystem when they are not as out of control as they've been the last few years which is related to uh, poor forest management for the last century that's a whole other story so we'll be doing the prescribed burns for the next three months and then in june which is typically when that wildfire season really starts we'll switch to suppression and we'll go uh just whenever there's a fire in our region or outside of our region even if there's a lack of firefighters in the area we'll get sent out there and we'll actually fight the wildfires very cool stuff very important stuff especially the last couple of years it's been crazy why have the wildfires been so bad lately yeah so like i said right it's 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 poor forest management over the last century. Um, for a long time, we kind of just let forest fires be forest fires because there weren't so many structures uh, or cities or towns in the way of them. You know, America was a little less populated. So uh, there were also controlled burns done at the time by indigenous tribes throughout America, which we later outlawed, which uh, obviously harmed the forest ecology and caused a lot of that forest undergrowth, the understory, like all the little bushes and shrubs and things that grow beneath the canopy of the trees to grow kind of unhindered by forest fire, which normally keeps them in check. And uh, that buildup of living and dead things in the understory causes fires to be much more intense, much more hot, much hotter, excuse me, and uh, to kind of spread faster and further. And as a result of that, we have much worse wildfires and more to all this is also climate change uh, as we have seen temperatures rise steadily over the last centuries we have more fuels available we have drier fuels available in the forests and uh, ecosystems are kind of not operating how they normally are so plants are pollinating in different times and trees are not growing according to their usual cycles so things are just a little bit off balance because of the way we manage them in previous years and now that balance is kind of being thrown off even more by climate change so we have drier seasons hotter summers longer summers uh, and all of that kind of adds into one big boiling pot that's causing all of these forest fires around the world yeah yeah that was a very good explanation thank you, thank you. um so how does that differ then from a controlled burn? What does a controlled burn look like? Yeah, so a controlled burn, which uh, to be fair, I, I don't really have experience with this firsthand yet because that season hasn't started. 
Um, but there's a burn plan put in place by whatever agency you're working with, in this case, the Fish and Wildlife Service, that goes again through ecologists, biologists, uh, fire specialists, weather specialists, all these people who decide what and when can be burned. Um, and sometimes that's just thinning forests and cutting down uh, hazard trees or certain trees that are growing unchecked or invasive species and then putting those in piles and basically just setting big piles of fuel on fire um, just to get rid of all that fuel so that if a forest fire comes, it doesn't just torch everything. Uh, also, sometimes it's just setting a fire in an area that you know is susceptible to fires and uh, can benefit environmentally from having a fire and uh, could potentially be of danger later in the season. So being able to set that fire and control it while you can uh, before it eventually becomes a danger in the later season uh, is a, a huge part of why we do controlled burns. And uh, yeah. This is something I've never really thought about before and I don't know how it's never occurred to me, but like, how do wildfires start? Uh, a lot of things. There's, I think, and I could be entirely wrong on this, but I believe 900 wildfires start every day in maybe it's 90, uh, whatever it is, it's more than most people think. There's a lot of forest fires every day in the United States and most of them are caused by lightning. Um, that's just something that, you know, we can't really avoid. Then there's human causes. You have a lot of, you know, fires started by cigarette butts tossed out of a uh, car window or by campfires where people don't understand the, you know, leave no trace principles and the uh, having a responsible campfire or they're having a campfire during a time where they are prohibited in certain areas because of the fire danger. And, you know, an ember from a campfire can travel a mile or two away carried by the wind and set a fire that people don't even realize they're setting. Uh, there's also, you know, fireworks or arson, or there's a whole number of reasons why forest fires start. Um, but the majority is lightning. That makes sense. So you're not living in your Honda Pilot anymore. Where are you living now? Correct. Uh, I am living in a government trailer on the wildlife refuge where I'm working. Uh, we're actually in the San Luis Valley Refuge Complex. So there are three different refuges here. Uh, I am in the one closest to Alamosa, and uh, luckily for me, Uncle Sam decided they could provide me with a trailer to live in. So there is some sort of um, bunkhouse near here that houses uh, Fish and Wildlife employees, but they are full. So they graciously provided me with four walls and a roof, and um, it's a lot like living in the pilot, but it's got a fridge and a stove, so it's a bit of an upgrade. Uh, and I have a gorgeous view of the Sangre de Cristo mountain range right out of all of my windows. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice spot. That's amazing. The San Luis Valley is like on my like next five trips list. Oh, absolutely. The great Sand Dune National Park is, I can see that from my window as well. Sangre de Cristo mountain range surrounds you or 180 degrees and you have the Southern San Juans and the other 180 degrees. So mountains all around the horizon. We're sitting at about 7,000 feet. So that nice high altitude oxygen uh, in the bloodstream. And like I said, it's a migratory bird haven. There's falcons, ospreys, eagles, uh, all sorts of little 
birds flittering around and those porcupine and elk and all that. It's just, it's a pretty magical little place. You paint such a lovely picture. <laughs> so what are your, what does your family think about this? Um, mom and dad were not too happy about the whole firefighting thing. Uh, but I think they know at this point I've managed to survive in a car in the desert for six months. I can probably get through another six months in a trailer on a wildlife refuge. So they're, you know, happy to see me exploring different career options. And uh, I'd like to think they're proud of the choices I've made in getting out here. And um, yeah, again, they were a little hesitant about the whole fire thing, but uh, I'm out here. Are you scared? Uh, a little bit. I haven't, again, actually been on a fire yet, so I don't really know what to expect. But having talked with uh, my coworkers and a lot of the people in the, the industry, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think, you know, there's dangerous situations, but there's dangerous situations in most jobs. So uh, a little anxious, yeah, but I think that just helps you stay on your toes. Yeah, well, thank you in advance. <laughs> what comes next? Like, what are your long-term goals? Is this what you think you're going to do forever? What does it look like? I have no clue. Um, I have a few options on the horizon, but uh, I'm kind of just going to, the current plan is to wait until I'm in the middle of the season and see how I'm enjoying things. Uh, potentially, yeah, I can make a career out of this and either stay in this area and this agency and do things around here for a while, or maybe look into doing fire with the park service or the BLM or any other agency. Um, or I maybe I won't enjoy it. And in that case, I'll look for maybe another seasonal job, maybe something a little longer. Again, we'll see how I'm feeling at the end of the season. Uh, I've thought about grad school, but I am going to save all that research for another time. Um, who knows? I might just apply this fall and get out of here and go study some more environmental stuff somewhere else. Uh, I don't really have a specific niche I want to study yet, so I'm, I'm hesitant to launch into more school without knowing exactly what I want yet, uh, which is another reason I'm doing all these seasonal jobs is trying to explore a bunch of different niches and see what comes back. But uh, yeah, I, I might go back into trails again. Who knows? We'll, we'll see how I'm feeling in a few months, which is the beauty of seasonal jobs. That's the dream. <laughs> Yeah. I could ask you like a million more questions and I have them, but I'll save you. I'll spare you. I just have one more. <laughs> I have one more. I ask everybody, what advice would you give freshman year Troy? Oh, great question. Um, I would say get more. And everyone says this, like every time you ask someone who's graduated for advice, they'll tell you most of these things. Uh, but it's true. I think get more involved while you're in the community, the college setting, get to know your professors. They're going to be your advocates in finding those first few jobs. And uh, even if it's just, you know, there's a get to lunch or buy your professor lunch program at USC. Uh, I think that's a great program, getting to know them more and getting to hear from a diverse array of experiences and uh, different people who've lived all sorts of different lives and then hearing what they have to say um 
and you know enjoy your time while you're there i mean when you're in your you know late teens and early 20s you can kind of make as many mistakes uh as you need to and figure the rest out in your late 20s uh, or at least that's what i'm hoping but uh yeah i think you know don't think take things too seriously find something you're passionate about and follow that and just uh yeah be good Be good. Troy said it. I said it. It's tattooed on my body. If you take nothing else from this podcast, take that. (laughs) Thanks again to Troy for coming on the pod and sharing his story and being so open and vulnerable. We really love to see that. And on a more serious note, we wish him the best of luck and safety while he protects our wildlands. As always, shout out to everyone listening. If this is your first episode, go ahead and take a peek at the others. I have a feeling you'll like what you see. And if you've been keeping up with us since the beginning, I cannot thank you enough. Make sure you're following the podcast, rating, reviewing, all that good stuff, and I'll talk to you guys next Friday. In the meantime, chase your dreams, hug a tree, and be good. Bye, guys. Before we go, our music is Bad Nostalgia by Anthem of Rain, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License.